Good morning, good morning, good morning. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Nice to know you care about each other. I am Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family this morning, both online and in the, the YMCA. So fun to worship together as we rebuild the habits of worshiping and serving together on Sunday mornings. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. If you found Isaac's playing too uh, rapturous to sign up for Serve Day, that's fine. It's time for the sermon now. So you'll have plenty of time to review all the opportunities. Go online to the link, lakeforest.org slash Missions. Look through all the opportunities to serve. Next Sunday, not next Sunday, we'll be here next Sunday. Uh, we will be serve day on the 11th, it's on 7-11. Easy to remember. Get your Slurpee, come do serve day, 7-11. Um, I would like to, Bill, Bill mentioned that we would love to pray for you, and we certainly would at uh, online Lake Forest, uh, Davidson Prayer at lakeforest.org. Here in the gym, as you know, there's prayer cards on your way out the door. Fill out a prayer card, put it in the basket. We would love to pray for you. If you have a tithe or offering, you can also put those in that basket. And online, that's at lakeforest.org slash Give. I'd like to ask you, this is kind of a flip though, I'd like to ask you to pray for me and to pray for my family. So you may or may not know this, but our oldest is named Indiana. We call her Indy. She is four years old. When she was a baby, she had to have heart surgery to construct a wall in her heart and to build a valve. That valve has never worked very well. And so her surgeon, as she's gotten bigger though, her surgeon looked at it and he thinks that he could, could go in and repair that valve so that best case scenario, she'd be done having heart surgeries or possibly she could get to be an adult before she would need a mechanical valve. And so the reason I ask for prayer is that on July 19th, July 19th, Indy uh, will go for her second heart surgery. And so I just ask you to be praying for that. Uh, our prayer is that God will fully repair, those are the two important words, fully repair Indy's heart. You could pray for her parents, Mandy and myself. Uh, I, this is probably harder on us than her. Uh, that's a bold statement. It's hard on us. <laughs> that's, a, that's a true statement. And her two-year-old sister, Cora May, we call her Cora. We don't know if Cora understands any of this, although Cora is maybe the smartest member of our family, so... She might. She'll, this will be her longest time away from her sister, and how do you explain to a two-year-old what's going on? So if you could just be in prayer for our family, that would be great. Throughout the month of July, I'm going to be taking a little more family time than usual for reasons you can probably understand. Uh, there are certainly some things that have to happen in July, like in the fall, we're going to do the Established in Love campaign to raise money for our church building, so there are just some things that have to happen in July. But at the same time, I'm going to take a little extra uh, family time for all the reasons you know, and I'm thankful for a church like you that not only encourages that, but is such a team, and t church is a team effort for us, that it is really possible for me to take some time off and uh, 
things usually go a little bit better. So we're very excited for that. So thank you for your prayers for my family. As much as we love praying for you, I love that you will be praying for us. July 19th, Monday, early, early. They tell you to get there like at, you know, 5, and then no one comes to talk to you to like 7. I never understand that. Someday I'm going to write a complaint about it, but not yet. Today we continue our year-long series of sermons called The Story with a capital S. We are looking at the big picture of the Bible, that from the beginning of time, God has been writing a great story in this world, and He invites you and me to find our place in it. We're trying to make the Bible a little less big, a little less intimidating, and so we have resources like reading plans and like videos, not to make you feel bad, but to help you understand the Bible at a deeper level. Previously on the story, in the beginning, God created the world. God created humanity in His own image, and yet humanity, in fact, all of creation, got lured into rebelling against God. In response to that rebellion, God has promised that He will bless all the peoples of the world through the family of Abraham and Sarah, and their family grew into a people, the Hebrew people, that became a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. We're at the part of the Bible where that kingdom divided into two kingdoms and then got conquered and taken into exile. Assyria took the northern kingdom. Babylon took all of it. Babylon burned Jerusalem to the ground. They burned God's temple to the ground. And they left a few people to live in the rubble. But they took everybody else from the promised land to Babylon. So when the kingdom divides, the Bible's focus shifts to prophets. Prophets are God's appointed watchdogs against idolatry and injustice. God keeps sending prophet after prophet after prophet to point the people back to Him. Turn away from these little g-gods and turn away from hurting your neighbor and return to God. Return to God's ways. Return to God's mercy. Worship God. This will be the message of the prophets for centuries. Return to God. Return to God's ways. Return to God's mercy. Last week, we talked about the, how the exile portion of the Bible, which is where we are, the people have been taken into exile, how the exile portion of the Bible is so important for us today. Because we know that in some ways the culture is shifting and that worship of God, faith in Jesus is becoming more marginalized. It's losing some of the protections or at least some of the deference it once enjoyed. And that's not all bad. God's people know how to live in exile. In fact, God's people know how to thrive in exile. We are not the first people who have ever tried to seek God and live for God in a pluralistic culture. That's a big word. I looked that up. Pluralistic means that people worship all kinds of gods. We are not the first people who have ever tried to seek God and live for God in a secularizing culture. Secularizing means that the worship of any god is becoming more marginalized, that the the overall society is becoming more irreligious than religious. Not necessarily anti-religious, but just irreligious. Today we turn to the prophet Daniel. Daniel. Daniel's life is recorded in a book of the Bible called, Cooper, any guesses? Daniel. Good guess. I'm excited you're already this engaged. Indy says hi, by the way. She likes you. 
So Daniel, we're looking at the book of the Bible called Daniel. The first half of the book is about Daniel's life in exile. The second half of the book is about God-given visions of the future that Daniel received. You pick which half is your favorite, but those are the two halves of Daniel. What we need to realize for today is that Daniel spent almost his whole life in exile in Babylon. This makes him somewhat unique among the prophets. He loved God, he lived for God, and he did almost all of it while in exile in Babylon. We can learn a few things from Daniel. This brings us to the passage Chandler read for us earlier. If you're in the gym and you don't have a Bible of your own, there's Bibles on the table as you walk out the door. We learn that there's a king called Nebuchadnezzar. This is not the word that you want to get in the spelling bee. Nebuchadnezzar is in charge of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is responsible for Jerusalem being burned to the ground, for God's temple being burned to the ground, for everyone being taken into exile. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3 the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the, young, some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So you see Nebuchadnezzar's strategy. His strategy is, I conquered your people, you are my subjects, now I'm going to take your best and your brightest and make them Babylonian. I'll teach them our language, I'll teach them our literature, I'll delete their old identities, I'll give them new identities. I will say to them, you are Babylonians, and they will believe me. Verse 6. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Judah, remember, is the southern kingdom. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. A lot of good Bible names there. Expectant parents take note. A lot of new folks, there have been two major trends we've seen during the, the pandemic, at least in the church. One is that a lot of folks have started to worship with us, have become part of our church family during the pandemic, and that's just wonderful. The second trend that we've seen is a lot of our young uh, married couples do not understand how far six feet is. <laughs> Expected parents take notes. So this is who Daniel is. Daniel is one of the best and the brightest that Nebuchadnezzar is going to take and reprogram and make into a Babylonian. Verse 7, so the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. To Azariah, Abednego. More good Bible names. Nebuchadnezzar takes the best and brightest and gives them new names, new identities, Babylonian names, Babylonian identities. Forget the customs, forget the people, forget the God of your home country. You're a Babylonian now. So ultimately, Daniel's life is about identity. Who am I really? 
deep down at my core, what is my truest identity? And is that identity unshakable? Am I who the God with the capital G says that I am, or am I who Nebuchadnezzar says that I am? Am I chiefly God's child or a Babylonian? Throughout his life in Babylon, Daniel continued to love God and to live for God above all others. But he also became very esteemed by the Babylonians. This is what is so interesting. He was very clear about his deepest, truest identity as God's child, as someone who sought to love God and live for God. But somehow he did it in a way that he became esteemed by the people of Babylon. Now that doesn't mean he was esteemed by everybody. He did get on some people's bad sides. But he was a trusted advisor to four kings who reigned during his life. God taught Daniel how to thrive in Babylon. God taught Daniel not just to survive in exile, but to thrive in exile. How to be esteemed without being indistinguishable. To be esteemed without being indistinguishable. God cultivated in Daniel a distinctness, but it was an authentic distinctness. And people were drawn to it. People, People came to Daniel. We have a lot to learn from Daniel. Daniel shows us that the secret to thriving in exile is identity. To gain clarity on the question, who am I really? Who am I really? Deep down at my core, what is your truest identity? The good news is that God wants to give you your identity. God wants to give you your deepest and truest identity, an unshakable identity that is rooted in Jesus. God does not want you to achieve your identity. God wants you to receive your identity through faith in Jesus. Big difference. Not achieve your identity, but receive your identity through faith in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, you can come to know that deep down at your core, you are a follower of Jesus, which means you're a friend of Jesus, which means you are God's child, God's son or daughter by faith. So if today or in the future you become a follower of Jesus, you can know that your deep down truest identity is that you are Jesus' follower, which means you are Jesus' friend, which means you are God's child, God's son or daughter by faith. It's an identity you receive, not an identity you achieve. So for the rest of the sermon, maybe even after the sermon, while you're still scanning the serve day opportunities, I'd like you to reflect on this question. What is your deepest, truest identity? And how does it affect how you engage with the world around you? What is your deepest and truest identity? And how does it affect how you engage with the world around you? Who are you really? And what if this is the time when you solidify your identity, not as something you achieve, but as something you receive from God? What if you were to solidify your deepest and truest identity is that you are Jesus' follower, which means Jesus' friend, which means God's child, God's son or daughter by faith? What if this is the time when we learn how to authentically live out in a new way this deepest and truest identity 
so that we might not just survive exile, but thrive in exile, be distinct, but in a refreshing and authentic way. How might we do that? Three ideas from the first verses of Daniel. Three ideas. The first is this. Number one, number one, number, number, number. Number one, how to thrive in Babylon as God's child. Number one, Daniel reflected thoughtfully on where to draw lines. Oh, that went right to number two. Well, we'll leave point number one. Point number one is Daniel reflected thoughtfully on where to draw lines lines. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. This is verse 8. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So he was thoughtful about where to draw lines. By God's grace, with God's help, Daniel did not say, well, everyone in Babylon is doing it, so I'm definitely going to do it. He also did not say, everyone in Babylon is doing it, so I'm not going to do it. He asked a different question, which is, what does God say about this? What does God say about this? You remember Chandler read earlier, Daniel and his friends learned the language and the literature of the Babylonians. They did not see any conflict between that study and their deepest and truest identity as God's people. So they were thoughtful about where to draw these lines. But Nebuchadnezzar had this habit of giving the best and brightest some regular food and wine from his table, and Daniel looks at this food and says, God would not want me to eat this. Now the Scripture does not say explicitly what Daniel's reason was. The most likely is that during the Old Testament time, God's people were governed by very strict dietary laws, and so it's highly likely that the food and the wine or the preparation method were not kosher, literally, not kosher. But whatever the reason, Daniel is convinced God doesn't want him to eat this royal food and wine, so what's he to do? Well, this gets us to our next point, but all I'm trying to make the point here is that as God's child in exile, you and I will be presented with lots of decision points, and we will have to be thoughtful about where we draw lines so that we won't be needlessly separatists, so that we won't be needlessly separatists, but at the same time would be guided by the question, what does God say about this? Not what does Babylon say about this, what does God say about this? So here we go, now to point number two. Here it is, thriving in Babylon as God's child. Point number two is that Daniel showed kindness and respect to the people in Babylon. Daniel showed kindness and respect to the people in Babylon. Sometimes when someone is antagonistic or indifferent about our faith or our pursuit of faith, we can say, oh, well, if you're anti-God, I'm anti-you. Or if you don't not interested in God, I'm not interested in you. And that's not what Daniel did. God cultivated in Daniel a very deep love of the people in Babylon. And it's evident in how he speaks to them. Even when he disagrees with them, he finds ways to be kind. He finds ways to be respectful. And this plays out on the whole food and wine thing. He tells the supervisor, Ashpanaz, he tells the supervisor, I would really prefer, I really don't want to eat this food and drink this wine. And this is Ashpenaz's response. 
the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king. That's Nebuchadnezzar. I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And this is a well-founded fear. Nebuchadnezzar is power-hungry, and his elevator no longer services all the floors. So how does Daniel respond to this? Daniel says this, Please test your servant for ten days. Give us, me and my three friends, give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. The supervisor said, as supervisors are prone to do, what a great idea, I'm glad I thought of it. Daniel honored his supervisor's fear of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel did not waver from his conviction that he should not be eating the king's food. He did not waver from his conviction, but he did find a workable compromise that showed kindness and respect to his Babylonian supervisor. In the midst of loving God, he did not lose sight of loving other people. And Daniel was convinced that God's way was the better way and that that would become obvious if given enough time. God's way was the better way, and it would become obvious if given enough time. And so he asked permission to try things God's way, and then they'll evaluate after 10 days. Some of us would be wise to follow in Daniel's footsteps here. In our homes, or in our neighborhood, in our work environment in our schools, that we don't need to let go of our conviction about what honors God, but instead of always trying to win a war, ask for permission to try something. And then evaluate how it's going with the one who granted the permission. Daniel believed that God's way would prove itself to be the best way given enough time. And so he did not go into Ashpenaz to win the war, but to ask permission to act consistent with his conviction for a period of time, and then we'll evaluate it together. Finally, number three. Number three, number, 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 number three. Thriving in Babylon as God's child. Number three, Daniel sought God in community. In other words, exile will actually heighten our need for the church, this or some church. We need community where our faith or our exploration of faith will be nurtured, will be encouraged, where we can grow, where we can serve, where we can be challenged, challenged to love the people of this world, challenged to reflect thoughtfully on where to draw lines and where to leave lines undrawn. One of my hopes of the last year for you is that it has emphasized your need to not walk through life alone. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. The last year has made me all the more eager to worship together with you, to do it weekly, not because God has an attendance chart, but because I need to. 
You and I need to. We need to seek God in community in order to thrive in exile. Now, this does make me think about so many of you who have become part of our church family during the pandemic. You've been a part of the church for maybe as much as a year, maybe as much as 15 months, and you may not know anybody not in your family because you may have never been able to be in person. So the last year has just been a little wonky. That's just, we'll just name it what it is. It's been a little wonky. But you've become part of the church family. We're so excited by that. Now, over the next year, you'll start to build those relationships, those bonds. This is part of why we're emphasizing things like serve day, things like serving regularly on Sundays or beyond Sundays. Because as part of serving, that's how you get to know some other people. We do something together, but we also get to know some other people. So if you're in that step of, man, I've been here for a year, but I don't know anybody because it's been a pandemic, that's okay. Just start taking a step in. If you don't know where to start, you don't know how to jump on serving, just email me, mflake at lakeforest.org, and I'll get you to the right people. Jump on the serve day. Join a serve day squad. But just take those steps. Give yourself the time that it'll take to build the relationships, the connections in a church that's been scattered, and it's going to be beautiful. And I'm so thankful for all of you who found a home here during the pandemic. This is what we see with Daniel. Daniel had these three guys, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, who are often more known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's another sermon for another day. But they walked together, they did life together, they prayed together when they needed God's help, they sought each other's counsel when they faced hard decisions, they thrived in exile, but they thrived together. They didn't thrive as individuals, they thrived as a team. The struggles of Babylon did not isolate Daniel or isolate his friends, they pushed them closer together so that they might thrive while in exile. And it pushed them all closer to God. The struggles of exile do not have to isolate you. The struggles of this world do not have to isolate you. They can push you closer to others, closer to God. Daniel's life in Babylon was about identity. Identity is still a hot topic today. As our society has become uh, as God has become more marginalized in our society, that giant God-shaped void in the center of society has been filled by a number of things, uh, chiefly, I think, messages about freedom, science, and identity. Freedom, which is often sometimes talked about as power, freedom, science, identity. And none of this is new. This has been taking shape for a century. If you go back and look at some of the early uh, atheistic philosophers, you'll see Nietzsche talking about freedom, Darwin talking about science, Marx talking about identity. This has been taking shape for a century at least. Now, as a Christian, don't get the wrong idea. As a Christian, I love freedom, I love science, and I love identity. And I try to make sense of them all in a Christ-centered way. And there's a lot of common ground that I have with the, the, the thoughts and people of our time. I'm going to give a few thoughts on identity right now. If you want to hear my little spiel on science and freedom, well, just 
again, email me, and if I get more than one request, I'll probably put it in a future sermon. Or if not, we'll, you and me will go sit down to a steak dinner uh, that you'll pay for, and it'll be fabulous. <laughs> You're free to do that. Identity. Currently, we emphasize the diversity of our identities, that we have so many different components that come together to make us us. And Christian faith agrees with this, that followers of Jesus, we celebrate the diversity of God's creation, the diversity of God's church. God has knit a lot of uniqueness into you, and those uniquenesses are worth celebrating. Where as a person of faith, I have to draw a line is around the question of my central identity. Some folks say that I should make my central identity what I have achieved or accomplished in this world, be known by what I do. Some people say that I should make my central identity the thing about me that makes me most marginalized, most in a minority status. So, for example, I have a child that's in four years has had two heart surgeries. Most the, and, and so that would not only that would let me be viewed sympathetically and in the, the thinking of our time would give me a moral authority or an irrefutability I don't have otherwise. And then some people respond against that and say my central identity should be that I'm a traditionalist, I'm eager to get rid of all this focus on identity and restore us to a simpler and less secular time. And as a Christian, my point is, I have to say no to all three of those as my central identity. There are a whole bunch of things that make up who you are, and that's a good thing. You are complex. You have so many identities that you need to understand and cultivate, and none of them can bear the weight of your life like Jesus can. And so while we may have, I may have a lot in common with the thinking of our age, with the people of our age, I have to draw a line at what is my central identity. I am first and foremost God's child through faith in Jesus. I am first and foremost God's child through faith in Jesus, and that identity helps me make sense of all the other ones. I come to understand and cultivate all my other identities in a Jesus Christ-centered way so that I don't love them too much and I don't love them too little. I love them just right, just as God intended for me. I have to be clear on what my central identity is and that it gets to make sense of how I understand and cultivate every other identity in my life. Exile will make us struggle with our identity. In this world, you will struggle with your identity. And in that struggle, you will realize that although our faith may waver in Babylon, God's faithfulness will not waver. Psalm 139 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Where can you go that is beyond the reach of God? Where can you go where God is not at work? 
Daniel and his friends found time and time again that in Babylon, God showed up. God proved his love. God proved his commitment to his children time and time again. God's faithfulness does not waver. And the always faithful God offers to us an unshakable identity when we trust our lives into Jesus' hands, that you are Jesus' follower, Jesus' friend, God's child, his son or daughter, in whom he is well pleased, not because you've achieved it, but because God extends his love for Jesus to all of Jesus' followers. Can you survive in exile? Can you thrive in exile? Well, if it depends on Babylon's faithfulness, I don't know. If it depends on your faithfulness, I don't know. But the good news is, it depends on God's faithfulness. The old hymn says, great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning. You're not even showing signs of turning away from me. So how might you and I thrive in these times? Being thoughtful about where we draw lines. Being kind and respectful to the people around us. Seeking God in community. Never losing sight of the fact, great is God's faithfulness. Even when your faithfulness or my faithfulness falters, great is God's faithfulness. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever He's stirring up in your heart or in your mind. Take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, you have promised us that you have for all of us hope and a future. Not always an easy way there, but hope and a future. And so we lean on that promise as we do the hard work of reflecting thoughtfully on where to draw lines on asking you to cultivate a love and a kindness in us, even towards people that might be antagonistic towards you or towards us. As we work on rebuilding the habits and rhythms of seeking you in community, Lord, as we do the hard work of identity, I thank you for all the uniquenesses you've knit into every member of our church family. And I pray that the quest for identity will lead us to your feet, where we will find an unshakable identity in Jesus that helps us make sense of and cultivate every other identity. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus, who invites each of us to follow him.
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship together.